Working over the past few weeks, we've been working our way through uh, the book of James. And uh, we're looking at the book of James in order to see and hear and hopefully start doing some things in light of what this unique and challenging book of the Bible has to teach us about how our faith in Jesus affects or at least should affect or should impact the way we live our everyday lives. The, the book of James has some of the most blunt and hard-hitting and convicting passages in all of Scripture. It has no fewer than 54 imperatives, all right? 54 different commands directing its readers toward a more Christ-like way of life. And throughout church history, James has given fits to, to great theologians and interpreters who have struggled to reconcile this, their grace-bestowed faith with this demanding letter that's overflowing with expectations. But that really is the brilliance of, of James. That really is the brilliance of this book. It helps us bring together this incredible gift of, of grace, of this incredible gift of salvation given to us freely by a loving God, right alongside this sort of change and transformation and new life that we want to see not only in our own lives, but in the lives of every single follower of Jesus. James is a book that gives us precious insight into the conduct befitting those who have really come to know the Lord. It doesn't tell us everything we need to know about the Christian life, but what it does say is worthy of our time and our attention and our obedience. And I offer this, this, this uh, preface to today's message because it's going to take exactly one verse for James to say something really, really hard, possibly convicting and most definitely challenging no matter who you are. It's the sort of thing that most of us and perhaps even all of us have experienced as, as both victim and perpetrator. It's a problem that is global in scale, insidious in nature, and as James makes clear, it is called out by sin, as sin by our holy and righteous God. In chapter 2, verse 1, James will call it favoritism or partiality which may not sound all that bad to, to you know, our modern ears and modern vocabulary, but these terms are synonymous with things like bias or discrimination or prejudice. And really, as you press into this idea, it extends to the ideas of racism and classism, elitism and ethnocentrism. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, when James calls out the favoritism that he fears is occurring in the lives and the hearts and the community of his readers, he isn't just slapping their wrists for harboring some unfriendly preferences. His concern is that these Christians, these witnesses to the world about who Jesus is and what Jesus expects of us, are judging human beings who have been made in the image of God based off of something as superficial and shallow as external appearances. And circumstances. Such judgments, as we will see, are inconsistent with the way that God sees the world and incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But before we get into the word itself, I do want to make it clear that I, I'm very aware of how deeply personal and painful this subject may be uh, for some of you this morning. It is entirely possible that you or someone you love or someone sitting on your left or on your right has been the victim of discrimination. It is also entirely possible that you or someone you love or someone sitting on your left or on your right struggles with this sin, struggles with being guilty of the sin of partiality or prejudice. And my hope this morning is that no matter where this message meets you in your emotional state or what spiritual state it may meet you, that you'll be able to hear it in the same way that James intended his original readers to receive it as a warning meant to offer correction and healing and restoration and repentance. 
James wrote this letter to a community of believers. He knew that this was a struggle for them, and yet he also believed that thanks to the power of their faith in Christ, they could overcome and break the chains of this particular evil. I pray that the same is true for you and for me and for Christians, no matter where they gather or who they gather with. With that in mind, let's jump into the word today. Uh, We're going to break down James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 into three parts, which build on one another. And the subject that we're looking at today, like I said, may be hard, but James presents the argument fairly clearly in a fairly straightforward way, which doesn't always happen in Scripture, so you should enjoy it when it it does. (laughs) And uh, what he's going to do is he's going to break down what we as believers cannot do in verses 1 through 4, why we cannot do it in verses 5 through 11, and then what we must do instead in verses 12 through 13. So what we cannot do, why we cannot do it, and what we must do instead. So the first part of his argument is that what we as believers cannot do is this. We cannot follow Jesus while practicing partiality. Right? We cannot follow Jesus while willfully and, and just all in practicing partiality. Beginning in 2.1, we read, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but to the poor man you say, you stand there or you sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. James kicks off this passage by stating a basic and and straightforward principle for the Christian faith. He says, those who believe in Jesus must not show favoritism. Or if you're looking at a different translation, it may use the word partiality. Believers in Jesus must not show favoritism. And this this key term, favoritism, that that James lays down as kind of this moral foundation, translates a Greek word, uh, uh, prosopolimpsia, which is a mouthful, prosopolimpsia, which literally means to receive someone according to their face. All right, so it's to receive someone according to what they show before you, how they appear before you. And it pops up in a few places, other places in the New Testament, and we'll circle around again to, to look at some of those in a bit. But, but what we want to note here is that whenever it's used in the New Testament, it is never used to describe the right way of doing things. And I really just want us to sit with verse 1 for a moment and, and, and just look at verse 1 for a moment and really consider what it is saying and what it implies And how it speaks to you. What is the Spirit saying to you as as you let those words from verse 1 soak in your mind and hit your heart? Brothers and sisters, everyone who believes that Jesus is Lord and Savior of the world must not judge anyone based on their outward appearance or their immediate circumstance. Favoritism and faith in Jesus, according to James, are incompatible. They're contradictory. They cannot work together, and so we cannot allow room for for partiality to take place in our heart. Now, we could use a couple other words to describe the attitude that James is trying to warn us against here. And when he says that Christians must not show favoritism, what he's saying is that they must not judge others according to their bias, according to their bent or their tendency, according to that inclination of temperament or outlook, especially a personal and sometimes unreasoned judgment. All right, he's saying we can't judge people based on discrimination, the act or practice or an instance of discriminating categorically <clears throat> rather than individually. 
Right? He's saying we can't judge based on prejudice. The words for, are, are pre and judge. They combine together a preconceived judgment or opinion, an adverse opinion or leaning formed without grounds, without just grounds, or before sufficient knowledge, an irrational attitude of hostility directed against an individual or a group or a race and their supposed characteristics. Favoritism caters to all these dangerous forms of judgment and caves to the way that the world values people and assigns them worth. The further we go in treating and judging people in this way, the further away we get from the way that God expects us to treat people. Now, after stating this principle, James applies it to the scenario that he he describes in verses 2 through 4. So he says that a a man enters the congregation, he's finely dressed, he's he's wearing gold rings. The word James actually uses calls him a gold-fingered man. And he walks into the church, and perhaps it's during a time of worship, or maybe just a time of fellowship and learning. It could have been during a time where they were, were trying to settle a dispute. Whatever this meeting was for, the congregation immediately drops everything. And, and drops everything they're doing, and they go out of their way to welcome this visitor so clearly adorned in his status and his wealth. And it's important to note that welcoming the man isn't the problem. It's perfectly acceptable to welcome people, and it's perfectly acceptable to, to welcome wealthy people in, in your midst and to treat them with kindness and to have joy that they've come to, to be with you. But the problem is that at the same time they show this special regard for the rich man, a poor man comes in. And it says he's adorned in filthy clothes. And he walks into their meeting and he is immediately disregarded and disrespected and discriminated against to the point of being told to sit on the floor in a place with no honor at the very same moment that a place of great honor is being prepared for the rich man, solely based on what they can tell from the appearance. After, after describing the scene, which may have been hypothetical, but probably had some elements to truth, James probably knew some of this had happened in the church he was writing to. James then calls out the obvious pre- prejudicial knee-jerk response and condemns it. And verse 4, he says, Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And he's not really asking a question there. What he's saying is, yes, you have discriminated amongst yourselves. Yes, you have become judges with evil thoughts. Favoritism, discrimination, and prejudice are not products of a moral, or of a moral mind or a pure heart. They come from evil thoughts, corrupt motivations, and selfish designs. And again, the problem isn't that they cared for the rich man. The problem is that they chose to care for one person while intentionally neglecting the care of another. It's that in the rich man, they likely saw an opportunity, a chance to get on somebody's good side, somebody with money and power and influence, somebody who could be beneficial. And then in the poor man, they saw nothing of value immediately based on that immediate appearance judgment. They took one look at him and quickly dismissed him and asked him to stand to the side, sit on the ground, just kind of get out of the way so they could focus on the person they really wanted to get to know. They judged both men based on their appearance and treated them according to what they believed each had to offer, according to what they assumed, how they assumed one could get them what they needed and one would take for them the things that they had. Neither assumption was made in an effort to love. Favoritism is not an act of love. It's an evaluation of what someone's immediate worth and value is to you, which leads you down a very selfish and unchristlike road. 
The context that James was addressing required him to apply this principle to the circumstances of wealth versus poverty, of have and have not. And that may be a very familiar experience for some of you. Some of you may have been on on either side of this sort of an evaluation before. But matters of money are not the only place that discrimination takes place. Other examples, perhaps even examples that exist within our own church, and I do want us to think about what, how, does this, how do we see this happen in our own church, in our own relationships, in our own small groups? How does favoritism enter into our context, and where do we need to root it out and be aware of it and be willing to repent? Perhaps we see it in favoring the thoughts and opinions and leadership of those who have a lot of education, while dismissing or diminishing the contributions of those who don't have PhDs who don't have master's degrees, who don't have diplomas from places of higher learning. We might be favoring people that look like us or talk like us or dress like us while at the same time looking down on people who look quite a bit different than us, speak different languages, or have very different cultural and socioeconomic backgrounds than our own. We might be guilty of favoring one race or ethnic group to the point where we also assume ours is superior to another. Favoring the way that we express our faith in Christ while dismissing and diminishing the traditions and theology and teachings of someone outside of our own denomination. We may be guilty of refusing to make friendships with people outside our status, outside our social group, outside our religion, our skin color, our neighborhood, or whatever it may be, simply because we've already decided that they're just not somebody we want to get to know. Based on how they appear to us, they're just not somebody we think that that we would like. This list could go on and on and sinfully on, but as followers of Jesus, we're called to do the hard work and repent and grow to see the beauty that God sees in everyone around us. It may help if we remember that Jesus was a tan-skinned Middle Eastern man with an average education, who was often homeless, who was often jobless, and from time to time certainly would have been wearing clothes that could have been described as filthy. God help us from ever being so hard-hearted, so short-sighted, so biased that if this road-weary Jesus were to walk into our midst, we'd ask him to sit on the ground so he didn't take a seat from somebody that we were pretty sure we'd like a little bit more. That just based on his or her appearance, we think we'd want them to be closer to us. We cannot be believers and practice partiality as, as a regular part of our lives. We shouldn't be believers and be doing this or embrace these immoral forms of discrimination. We have to bring them before the Lord and ask him to help us soften our hearts to them and guide us to repentance. We cannot follow Jesus and contribute to the the prejudice that poisons this world. The two are incompatible. We have to pursue one or the other, and we want to be the people that choose to pursue Jesus. Because if we do continue to to pursue favoritism, to, to pursue partiality, we drift very, very far from the way of life that Christ wants us to live, as James will explain in 2, 5 through 11. He says, listen, dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. 
For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. For if you do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Now there's a lot going on in these couple of verses, but I want to I drill down and focus on two points that I think James is especially trying to make. When we show favoritism and partiality, when we wrongfully discriminate and allow prejudice to influence how we look at and feel about others, we get caught up in two dangerous and rebellious sinful consequences. The first is that favoritism prevents us from seeing and valuing people the way that God sees and values them. Prevents us from seeing and valuing people the way that God sees and values them. And the second is that favoritism causes us to break the greatest commandment to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. In verse 5, James reminds his readers that God has always had a completely different criteria than the sort we often, too often use when determining the value and the worth of the people around us. He says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? This is a timeless truth that, pro- that got proved again and again throughout scripture. All right, God used a nomadic and elderly man named Abraham, along with his nomadic and elderly wife, Sarah, to begin the story that would lead to the eternal throne of Jesus and the salvation of all people. He looked on a people that were trapped in slavery and chose to deliver them out of their bondage and forge them into the nation of Israel, not because of their strength. In fact, he specifically reminds them that they weren't strong and they weren't wealthy and they weren't the best. There wasn't something uniquely special about them and that's why he, he chose them. But he, he chose them because of his love for them and his plans for them. Jesus didn't begin his ministry by recruiting the greatest philosophers or cultural influencers or people in positions of power. He picked a bunch of fishermen and a couple of political radicals and some women that he had helped out of some really bad situations and said, these are my people. For whatever reason, God loves the little guy, the underdog, the dark horse, the overlooked, the marginalized, those who are poor in the eyes of the world. God sees value in a much much deeper way than we do. That's why when he sent the prophet Samuel to look for Israel's replacement king after it became clear that King Saul, who the Israelites had chosen because he was tall and he was handsome and he looked like all the other kings from all the other nations that were around them, it became obvious that that King Saul wasn't going to work out. And so God sends Samuel out to find the next king, but he warns him not to fall into that trap of favoritism. In 1 Samuel 16, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's not the poverty or the wealth that matters to God. His favor isn't based on things like power or prestige or family or race or finances or nationality or productivity or success or failures or any of that. God looks at the heart. He has promised everything, nothing less than the entire kingdom of God to those who love him. For the people that James was writing to, they needed to be reminded that that includes the poor. This does not mean that it excludes the wealthy. It just means that you can't diminish people because of their struggles or their circumstances. That's not something that God's going to do, so we can't do it either. 
When we use this circumstantial criteria to determine whether or not someone is worth our time, our compassion, our care, or our love, we're using a system of merit that God rejects entirely. Earlier I mentioned that favoritism uh, shows up in a few other places in Scripture. You can find it in places like Romans 2.11, Ephesians 6.9, and Colossians 3.25. And, and we won't go and look at those right now, but I can't tell you that each time the Apostle Paul uses that term favoritism in, in Romans, Ephesians, and Colossians, he's using it in the midst of describing the character of God. And every time he does, he says, God shows no partiality. If it's not a practice that God himself is willing to try, why in heaven or on earth would we deceive ourselves into thinking that it's a good practice for us? Favoritism prevents us from seeing and valuing people the way God sees and values them. And it also causes us to break the greatest commandment, to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. In verses 6 through 7, James touches on a particular issue that, w- that was affecting his original audience. For, for whatever reason, there, there's this odd thing that's going on. Despite the, the kindness uh, that, that these people are trying to show the rich in their community, the rich are dragging them off to court. Uh, for, for perhaps legitimate or perhaps illegitimate reasons, but they're, they're dragging them off to court. And it also appears that some of these rich folks that were in this town were blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong. So they were discrediting and dishonoring the name of Jesus and the faith of those who follow him. Now, some of James's original audience could have tried to make the argument that they were simply trying to love these neighbors, specifically only their rich neighbors, with the very actions that James had, had condemned already in this passage. But the problem is that love for one's neighbor must extend to all relationships and to all people, not just the ones that you're hoping to appease in order to improve your own circumstances. Love for your neighbor is not a strategy for getting on someone's good side. It's meant to be a powerful moral foundation for the kingdom of God. It transforms us into people who treat others equally and not with partiality. It allows us to see the joy and the beauty of praising alongside people that are a whole lot like us and people that are quite a bit different than us. People that are richer than us and people that are poorer than us. People that are smarter than us. People that are stronger than us. People that are weaker than us. People that are meeker than us. And everything in between and beyond. There is enough love in the kingdom of God to go around and around and around and then some. And part of our calling is to be people who share that love abundantly. So if we really want to obey this royal law to love our neighbor, that's what James calls it, this, this royal law to love our neighbor, royal in its preeminence and being set above all other laws and set alongside the law to love God by King Jesus himself in Matthew 22 and Mark 12, if we want to obey this royal law to love neighbors as ourselves, then we can't allow favoritism to dilute or destroy our love for others. The truth is, this truth is actually established long before Jesus ratifies it in the Gospels. In Leviticus, the book that records the law that God gave the Israelites as they became a nation, God forbid the practice of partiality. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15, we read, Do not pervert justice. And notice that's the level that God puts this issue on, the idea of perverting justice. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great but judge your neighbor fairly. Either, favoritism either way is no good. 
And then just four short verses later, we find that first record of the royal law that Jesus would make the chief ethic of the new covenant people when he says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. James is one of the earliest writers of the New Testament and and so one of the earliest writers of Christian theology and he's sticking so very close to what Jesus had taught him. He holds up Jesus' teaching high to love God and love others and he understands it as being part of obedience to God's original law given in the Old Testament and that he combines all of this to reach his conviction and offer his corrective, the antidote to the problem of partiality. And he says, if you really live out the royal law of Jesus... To its full intent, the law to love your neighbor as yourself, as the companion to loving God with everything you have, then you will love the poor whom you have recently despised. And I think you can take that last part and insert whatever category of favoritism you might happen to struggle with. If you really live out the royal law of Jesus to its full intent, the law to love your neighbor as yourself, as the companion to loving God with everything you have, then you will love the poor you have despised, the rich you have despised, the lost whom you've despised, the enemy that you've despised, the race or people group that you have despised, the educated, higher or lower that you have despised, the people that are struggling with sin that you've despised, despised, that are struggling with a way of life, that are struggling with addiction. You can make this list go on and on, but the corrective is always love. The love of God, the love he has for us, the love he has for you, and the love he wants us to share with others charts a path away from the sin of prejudice and into the obedience of loving your neighbor as yourself. With every passing day, I become more and more overwhelmed and captivated by our God's command and desire for us to be people who are known by our love. We're not told that we have to be perfect. We're not told that we have to have all of the answers. We're not told that we have to be flawless judges of everyone, everywhere, at all times. The world will know we are Christians by the gospel we proclaim and the love we share with everyone, everywhere, at all times. But favoritism drags us away from that beautiful and amazing calling. It is just one more way we become lawbreakers and transgressors and sinners in need of forgiveness. And in case anyone would be tempted to make the, well, my tendency to be a little bit biased is not all that bad, it's not that big of a deal, James has a sobering warning for that sort of argument in 9 through 10. Partiality is a really big deal. It is really bad precisely because we try to to not think of it that way or try to convince ourselves that it's not all that bad. We cannot be selective about our observance to Jesus' commands. We can't say, I'm I'm really a pretty righteous person, so God's just going to overlook this one problem over here. No, our call is to reject the sins that we see in our own life, to seek God out for repentance, to go before him honestly and lay them before him at his feet. If there are things that are, God, that are evil in God's sight, we don't want to surround them with excuses. Favoritism is wrong, and it objectively breaks the law of God and reveals the corruption and sin that's embedded in our hearts, and that's exactly where God's going to look to try to understand who we truly are. So we want to be honest about it. And we want to tell him when it's a struggle and wait for him to come and help correct us in repentance and love. So we must not show favoritism because it prevents us from seeing and valuing people the way God sees and values them and causes us to break that greatest commandment to love God and love neighbors as ourselves. So what do we do instead? James offers one final piece of beautiful gospel-inspired advice when he says, speak and act as someone who has been saved by grace. 
Speak and act as someone who has been saved by grace. In James 2, it says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Followers of Jesus are people who are judged by a law that liberates. Our sin meets God's grace, and grace wins every single time. So James's encouragement is simply this. Act like it. Live like people who are so overwhelmed by the grace of God that you just don't have room in your hearts to judge people with prejudice. To do so leads you further and further away from the resurrection life that God blessed you by grace to live when he offered you the life and death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. Theologian David Hubbard puts it this way. He says, anger and hatred are not freedom. They tie us in knots. They goad us into saying and doing things that we really don't believe in. Love is liberating because it trusts God to be the final judge and encourages us to do good whenever we can. This law that gives freedom is not a checklist for obedience. It is the Spirit of God living within us, working on our hearts, and transforming us into the kind of people who truly take joy in understanding that we can live in life of mercy that always triumphs over judgment. The God of the universe wants you to be merciful. I mean, spend some time just thinking about how amazing that is. There is a God who created everything, a God who is all-powerful, and his desire for you is to be merciful. He sees no worth in being hateful or spiteful or discriminatory. Every one of us is freed by grace to love the outcasts of society. And more than that, we're freed by grace to be the outcasts of society and not even care. We are liberated from the bondage of anger and hatred and poor judgment. And the love of God has set us free from all this. You are someone who was saved by grace bestowed on you by a loving God. So speak and act like it. You've heard this word, now go and do it, as it has been done to you by our Lord Jesus Christ. So what can we do with all this? How can we take some steps in understanding where favoritism might be in our hearts, where we might need to root it out and and confess it, or even better understand the impact that it's had on us? A potentially eye-opening and humbling exercise this week would be to ask yourself these questions uh, through the coming week. Uh, Who do I physically show partiality to? Who do I emotionally show partiality to? And who do I spiritually show partiality to? And for those of you who are big on grammar, I realized after I wrote these sentences that they're terrible, terrible sentences. But still try to stick with me. Uh, Physically, who do I show partiality to? Emotionally, who do I show partiality to? And spiritually, who do I show partiality to? And a crowd, who am I more comfortable being around? Am I more drawn to be near certain types of people? Do I intentionally avoid certain types of people solely based on appearance? Do, I, do all of my friends look and sound and act very similar to me? Do I interact with people the way that Jesus did? And why or why not? Are there certain types of people that I tend to have less sympathy for or more sympathy for? Am I quick to be cold to those whose circumstances are not like my own? What, again, would Jesus' example be? And finally, do I assume who wants to be included or who should be included in spiritual communities based on their external appearance or their external circumstance? Do I know and love any non-believers? 
Do I love them enough to desire a friendship with them, even if they are uninterested in learning about Jesus? And again, what would the example our Savior set for us be? As you think about these questions and try to answer them honestly, consider this. Partiality only serves to separate us from people that God loves. Partiality can only separate us from people that God loves. It hurts the people we judge, and it hurts us too. So let's be people who treasure the words of our Savior from John 13. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is a hard word, and it's, it has power to convict. It has power to, to open our eyes to things that we, we weren't aware we were doing. It also has power to, to just comfort us in the reality that we may be um, the victims of, of, of prejudice, of discrimination, and of things like this. And so, Lord, I would pray that this message meet those in this room wherever it needs to, that the Holy Spirit would discern who needs to be comforted and, and, and to be told that the thing that... The, the hate and, and the discrimination they may have received from others is not what God wants for them. And at the same time, Lord, convict us if we are guilty of, of being those who, who have been discriminatory, who have practiced favoritism and partiality. Lord, the good news of the gospel is even though we may have done this, even though we may be guilty of this right now, you are so ready to forgive. You are so ready to give grace and you are so ready to help us move beyond this, to grow and repent and become people who can love you can share love in this world the way that you want us to. So God, in this, in this final moments, in this closing song, please lead us to consider what you're trying to tell us today and be aware of how it can impact us as we move forward this week. In Christ's name we pray, amen.